some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with Tanya Ali and Katie Winton. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics, news and trash from a feminist perspective. My name is Katie Winton. And I'm Tanya Ali. Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling from many communities and would like to honour that history. We've got a pretty packed show this morning. Uh, we'll be chatting to three special guests about everything from Women's Rugby League in Papua New Guinea to the role that LGBTQIA plus music and culture plays in shaping the identities of queer folk. So I caught up with Joanna Lester to chat about Power Mary, a documentary film that follows the journey of Papua New Guinea's first national women's rugby league team, the PNG Orchids, to the World Cup in Australia last year. So we're going to hear that chat a little bit later on in the show. And we're also talking to Maeve Marsden about a queer musical tribute happening at the Factory Theatre on October 24th. And right after this song, we're going to be chatting to drummer, percussionist, composer and sound artist Brie Van Rijk, who is performing in Day for Night next weekend as part of Liveworks Festival of Experimental Art. Uh, stick around for that right after this song from Empress Of. It's from her new album, which came out yesterday. It's called I Don't Even, Don't Even Smoke Weed. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
Radio. And we're joined now by Australian drummer, percussionist, composer and sound artist Brie Van Rijk, whose piece Invisible as Music is happening as part of Day for Night at Liveworks Festival of Experimental Art next Saturday night. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Brie. Thanks for having me. I'm really interested in your practice as a musician, kind of intersecting with your work as a sound artist and composer. Like you've toured with so many people, like Paul Kelly, Holly Throsby, Sarah Blasco, and Tanya saw you playing with Holly Throsby. Yeah, I remember seeing um, you play with Holly Throsby like when I was 13 or something at, at some festival at the Rocks, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe, I think we did an Australia Day concert I, and we yeah. turned up like <laughs> 10 minutes before our set time. <laughs> it was not very cool. That's, that's what I remember about well, that gig. you but, killed it. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but you've also created new work uh, with visual artist Lauren Brincat like Art Gallery of New South Wales, MCA, um, Next Wave, MoFo, um, with a particular focus on large-scale performative works. I'm really wondering whether those different contexts that you create music or sound art in um, are different experiences or whether they're kind of those strands of your practice are all like interconnected. Yeah, actually, it, it really feels like things are coming together a lot more for me now um, with what I do. And I've had for a long time sort of feel that um, like in the like I studied classical music and also jazz drumming growing up and so I grew up playing in youth orchestras but I also played in rock bands and um, I've I've sort of feel like the rock and roller in the classical world and then the more sort of classic like it's slightly classical in the rock and roll world and um, and then I've sort of had this you know other thing doing um, yeah more performative artworks and things with Lauren and yeah it has felt really separate up until quite recently when I sort of realized that more and more I'm, I'm being able to bring all the things in together and um, and particularly for this show um, this performance next week um, I'm really just sort of thinking like just do exactly what you want to do and don't think about making it one thing or another thing and and I feel really positive about sort of bringing in all those different influences. Did something shift to make it that change happen or was um, it kind of just a progression of your work? I think, well, I'm 40. I just turned 40. So maybe it's sort of that that thing about being a bit older and, and realising that I've been doing it. Like if you saw me play when you were 13, like that's <laughs> what it makes me. Um, it sort of makes me feel old, but at the same time, like recently I was working with, um, I've done some work with Marcus Whale quite often and we were um, doing something together with an, um, this bass player, Jacques Emery, who's like 21 and I've I sort of got there to the rehearsal and I was like, wow, I feel sort of so old because especially Jacques and Marcus, like they're both really young. But at the same time, I feel really young by being able to still work with people, you know, um, who are who are emerging more. And I'm sort of slightly further along the emerging path, I guess. So, yeah, I think that there is a shift with just sort of feeling validated that I'm still here doing it. Um, I've managed to stick it, you know, stick with music and um, and performance and um and I think also seeing that I've spent a bit more time focusing as a composer in recent years. I'm actually studying a Masters of Composition at the moment at the Con. And it's sort of been, being able to see my, how my work sits in that kind of world, like a contemporary classical world, which is sort of very formal chamber music. And all the pieces that I write in that context have a more... Um, like a, a performative aspect that goes beyond that kind of here's a stage there's people with a music stand you're the audience sitting here like I'm really interested in in changing that sort of relationship in that world um so yeah it's I I think that it's it's sort of coming together <laughs> slowly it's so exciting um and your new work uh invisible as music 
coming up next Saturday night at Day for Night as part of Liveworks. Um, would love to hear you talk through the different daytime and nighttime elements of your work. Yeah, sure. So um, in the afternoon, we're d- we'll be doing um, it's like a 20 to 30 minute in- invitational installation performance. Um, and the current sort of inspiration for my work is um, I'm really looking at the representation of women in in the Western canon or the lack thereof, really. Um, and in particular, I've come across these um, anonymously published motets from the 16th century. Um, and the, the, they've now been attributed to a nun, Leonora de Esther, and she was the abbess of the nun of a, uh, the convent at Ferrara near um uh, Venice in Italy in the 16th century and she couldn't publish as a composer in her own time because she was a woman and, and some women were publishing as composers then but not very many it wasn't very highly regarded if you were she was a noble woman like she was the daughter of a duke she's actually like her mother is Lucrezia de Borza and she's the illegitimate daughter of a pope Wow! and so it's, it's really when I sort of found out this story about it's Eleonora. Um, I just sort of thought, wow, she has 500 years later, this um, professor in a musicologist, Laurie Strass in England, has attributed the works to her. Um, and at the time, she couldn't, she couldn't publish them. But she's like the illegitimate granddaughter of a pope. So the pope can <laughs> like have sex with whoever he wants and, and do whatever. And she can't even make music. Publish her music. Yeah. yeah. And you just think about all the other women that like so she then and this the way that she was able to work in music was to go to the convent and it's actually at that time it's one of the only ways that women could engage in music as a practice um was in the convent so um yeah I I was really interested in that story and the music that she's written is absolutely beautiful they're these five-part motets and it's a vocal style called voci pari um which means equal voices, and I think the sentiment of that is really beautiful. And it's there's not much of that music written, and it's written um, for a, um, a limited vocal range, so it suits same-sex choirs, so it's from the monasteries and the convents. So in a roundabout way, my work is sort of addressing her in, in this um, Invisible as Music. And Invisible as Music comes from an Emily Dickinson poem. Um, it's a quote where she says, invisible as music, but positive as sound. So just trying to make a positive sort of resonance and, and find a way to, to name her and acknowledge this contribution of women that has just been ignored for so long. Um, but sort of do that, by doing that, it's sort of also like a rock performer, rock music performance. <laughs> and um, the afternoon, yeah, it's going to be, it's an inst- invitational installation. And um, um, there are, there are things like, um, disturbances. It's actually turned into almost like a little bit of a seance in my mind. Um, so there's this sort of this invocation. So there will be ways of calling out to her and to other women who have who have been ignored. Um, I, I did a work recently with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra Fellows, and I had all the women in the group um, ripping out pages from patriarchal books and scratching up the pages and throwing them in the bin all in time. And the sound of that ripping was just really beautiful so I'm going to go and get some more books for this as part of this performance yeah and so the books will be there and people will just be invited to rip pages out of some books um hoping to pick up some Alan Jones biographies <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes um and then there's just I've, I've been making these um string instruments which are kind of like zithers which is like a, a hammered dulcimer like basically strings that you play with sticks 
and I've been developing them recently actually for another work with Urban Theatre Projects. Um, but I'll be, I've made a few of them and they're really easy to play. Anyone can play it with a bow or just using sticks on the strings. So we'll have them in the space for people to use. And there'll also be the invitation to, to listen to what's happening and to sing in response. And, um, and then in the, in the evening, then I have four other performers joining me for just a kind of loud, noisy, um, kind of a sonic youth version of one of these motets, basically. Is that's what's in my mind? Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and does the does the performance in the night time kind of take elements of the people that are interacting with the um, books in the daytime, or um, is it kind of a yeah? Um, I have some yeah. I'm sort of looking at this idea of anonymity with the afternoon performance and in the evening as well. Um, so um, yeah. I, is a bit of a, I, I can't give too much away about okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just have to come point. and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see it for yourself. Um, so who are the other kind of uh, musicians that you're working with for the uh, piece in the nighttime? Um, in the nighttime, so I'm working with Alex Dennison, who is a really fantastic singer and songwriter and composer. Um, Freya Shack Arnott, who is a wonderful cellist and improviser, who I work with with Ensemble Offspring and different things. Um, Roz Helper, who is um, just recently moved to Melbourne and running Next Wave, um, but also plays in rock bands. Um, and Lynn Hazelwood, who's also a visual artist who plays in rock bands. And I've never worked with all four of them together, <clears throat> um, but I'm, I'm really excited to, we're going to be getting together this week and, and, and jamming it out, um, making some noise. That sounds really fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be fun. So fun. Um, this year's Liveworks program in general has so much happening. Um, can you tell us what you're excited to see as part of Day for Night or just the broader program? Yeah, I wish I could see everything. I'll, I'll try as much as I can. <laughs> um, I saw the Nicola Gunn work the other night at the opening, <clears throat> which was really fabulous and really like funny and very enjoyable. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I missed out on seeing Angela go, but I think that'll be a really amazing work. Um, Infinity minus one sounds really amazing. This kind of um, Indonesian death metal and and traditional singing, I think. Um, and I think the the William Yang he's opening the day for night um, performance with a, a lecture performance about the the history of queer culture in Sydney. Um, which sounds really wonderful, and and it's I, I think yeah the the breadth of the program is amazing that it's bringing in so many different artists like that. Yeah, that William Yang uh, performance lecture is scored by Stereogamous as oh, well, and cool. I kind of um, had a sneak listen to the playlist the other day, and it will be really great. Oh, <laughs> so, great! Yeah, a fantastic yeah. playlist accompanying that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. Well, and also there's like durational cooking, which sounds yeah <laughs> with Bradalabia. Yeah. 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 So many things yeah, happening so many <laughs> as part things. of Day for Night. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Um, and Brie, thank you so much for joining us on Agenda this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I absolutely can't wait to see Invisible as music. Uh, it's happening in Day for Night as part of Liveworks Festival next weekend. Tickets are still available online via the Performance Space website and we'll pop a link up to that on the Agenda page. We will. And coming up right after this, uh, we'll be hearing from Power Mary, uh, which is a film documenting the Papua New Guinea Orchids, which is the national women's rugby team, um, rugby league team in Papua New Guinea. And before that, though, Brie, you've requested a song for us today that relates to your work. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, the, well, this is one of the motets from um, Eleanor Dest, um, which are just, yeah, they're just really stunning. Um, and 
um, it's interesting to approach it because they are devotional songs, like they're written in a church context. So I, I, that I kind of makes me arch my shoulders a little bit. <laughs> um, but they were they were written for public consumption as well, not just within the church. So people would come daily and listen to these motets. And yeah, I think it's just really wonderful to to find this music from 500 years ago and and just it's brilliant. Let's take a listen. Agenda with Katie Winton and Tanya Ali. Get a little bit more track. 
documentary about the Papua New Guinea Orchids, the first ever national women's rugby league team in Papua New Guinea, and how their story intersects with Papua New Guinean politics and issues in gender specifically like violence against women. I'm here now with director Joanna Lester. Thank you so much for joining me, Joanna. Thank you for having me. Uh, Firstly, can you tell us how you first came across the PNG Orchids and uh, their incredible story? Yes, so I was brought up with the sport of rugby league in England um, and we always used to have a few Papua New Guineans playing rugby league in England and we always knew that it was the only country in the world where rugby league is the national sport. So I'd always been fascinated with PNG from that perspective and after I moved to Australia 10 years ago, I first went up to PNG in 2009 and saw for myself the popularity of the sport, which is really... um, it's hard, it's hard to believe State of Origin is more popular in PNG than it is in Australia. It's just really, every, it, it's, it's the national sport, it's, it's the national unifying force. Um, and I could see there was a lot of potential for Rugby League to, to change mindsets and change society there. 
And in 2014, I moved there to work on a programme run by the NRL up there that uses the popularity of rugby league um, in, in schools and in communities to deliver messages and to, to change attitudes. And it was working there that I worked alongside many of the girls who play rugby league, who ended up in the Orchids team, and heard their story of, of as women playing rugby league at the local level and how that was changing things for women and the way people viewed them. And then when I found out that PNG would get a team in the Women's World Cup, that seemed like a bigger story and a bigger journey to cover. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, women's rugby league is kind of growing in Australia, uh, but it still has its struggles in being recognised by the media and the rugby league fans. Um, Could you give our listeners an idea of the unique challenges for women's rugby league in PNG? Yes, so some of them are not that different. Actually, a lot of Australian female rugby league players have watched the film now. Players from the Broncos and the Roosters, uh, NRL women's teams have watched it over the past few weeks and they've said they actually identify with a lot of it. Um, So some of the things they identified with were the the social media abuse of the players. Um, A lot of it focused on the fact that they are women. Um, Not getting the same resources as the men's team. Um, Obviously, the Jillaroos and the NRL women's teams in Australia are now quite well resourced, whereas in PNG there's there's very limited resources. But over the past 20 years in Australia, they could identify with some of that as well. And also um, playing a sport where ideally you have access to some decent level of coaching, access to gym, um, some knowledge and education about about fitness and, and diet and that sort of thing. Um, and particularly the story of your kids, where you had women who went from playing in their local teams to the World Cup in a period of a few months. That was a very steep learning curve. Um, and that is also something that some of the Australian female players identified with, how it's only really been the last couple of years that they've had access to that kind of expertise. Yeah, totally. Um, having finished the film, can you tell us about your understanding of the relationship between sport and social change? Yes, well, that was the reason I made this film. Um, in PNG, more than in many other countries, women really are treated as a second class, as, as a couple of the players say in the film. Um, and that's really coming from a really rapid change from traditional cultures. PNG has more than 800 languages. It's really a country that has been, it's been a country for 43 years and, and a lot of things have changed very fast and traditional views of women and their roles in society Um, haven't changed as fast as a lot of people would like. And so given the country's obsession with rugby league and the power of seeing women playing it um, and the ideas that that plants in people's minds about women being able to do other things that are similar to men, whether that's just have a job, you know, a lot of a lot of in a lot of settings in PNG, especially more rural settings, there is there is no expectation that women will go to school or work. And and this the story of women playing rugby league and doing things a little bit differently. A lot of the players on the team believe that that will change attitudes more generally about what women in PNG, the opportunities they should have and what they should be able to pursue. Do you feel like it is changing from what you've kind of observed um, over the past little bit and while making the film? Do you feel like those changes are currently happening in even small ways? I think, yes, in, in small ways. I mean, the very fact that there is now a national women's team. I mean, these girls are not new to playing rugby league. Most of them have played the sport for, you know, five to ten years in local competitions and um, and at a, at a lower level. And they were always hoping there would be a national team at some point to represent their country in the same way that the PNG men do with the Kummels. Um So the fact that, that now there is one, that in itself is a big step. They've been able to play in 
in the National Football Stadium in Port Moresby, which is an incredible stadium, better than many NRL grounds we have here in Sydney, actually. Um, and they've played in front of full crowds there. You know, you know in fact, at the, at the Women's World Cup, which was down in Cronulla, a lot of the games, um, the stands were empty. But in PNG, when there's a women's match in the big stadium, the stands are always full. So that indicates that at least of the sort of ten to 15,000 people who fit into that stadium in Port Moresby, they really enjoy seeing women play rugby league. And I think, um, I hope it's it's sort of seeding some changes. Yeah, and I hope those changes kind of extend over to Australia too, because I guess, and it goes for all sports, not just rugby league, but, um, you know, there are more women's competitions coming up, which is great, um, but generally, you know, even if there are crowds going to them, they still don't get a primetime slot on TV or whatever we saw with the, like, women's AFL grand final. You know, people people do show up and people are excited to get on board, but I think there needs to be a greater, a greater kind of change of mindset around the fact that women's sport is just as important. And if not, it's kind of more exciting in some ways because there are, especially in PNG, these women who are kind of, like, um, taking really big steps to change the way that gender is seen in, yeah, in a country like PNG. It's very exciting. Um, congratulations on the film's world premiere uh, back in September as part of the Pacifica Film Festival at Casula Powerhouse. How's the reception to the film been so far? It's been really good, actually. Um, we've also now launched the film in, in PNG. We wanted to make sure that the Orchids team could attend the first screenings in each country. So we actually had a preview screening in Brisbane um, just before the world premiere when the Orchids were here playing the Broncos women's team. Um, and they they attended that, which was incredible. There's a lot of Papua New Guineans in Brisbane, so half the audience up there um, were Papua New Guineans and, and they loved the film and having the Orchids in the cinema was even more special, really. Um, and... And the reaction has been has been really good so far. I think, uh, not just among rugby league fans, but quite a lot of women have watched the film and said, "I am the least rugby league person you'll ever meet. I don't even watch sport, but this film is not about sport. It's about a group of women doing something different and inspiring." Um, so that's really encouraging because although I know that the film will resonate with the Pacific community and the rugby league community, if it resonates more widely, and also puts. PNG on the map a little bit through a positive story about women. There's so little media coverage of PNG in Australia and so much of it is negative. And so little of it is about what daily life is in PNG, which really involves a lot of rugby league. So I think this is a really good way to, to show Australians a side of PNG that they rarely see, but is actually very real. The film follows the journey of the Orchids in the lead up to and during their first Women's Rugby League World Cup in Australia last November. And for many of the team members, it was the first time that they got their passports, even left the country um, and their communities. Could you share some of your favourite memories from what was a really historic time for the team? It was. um, Getting the passports is always funny because, as in many countries in Papua New Guinea, Quite a lot of people are a bit unsure about their date of birth um, and there hasn't always been the greatest of record keeping around that. So getting passports for a whole team of people is quite a mission. Um, but it, it was all done just in time. And um, and that was really special for, for people to get a passport and, and to be, in many cases, the first person in their family to travel overseas. And in fact, some of the players who don't come from Port Moresby, they come from smaller towns around the country, had never even been to the capital Port Moresby until they got into the team and 
Um, and they were just talking about things like they'd not been on an escalator before and all these these sort of things. Um, so it was a, a huge eye-opener. Um, and, you know, coming down to Australia, even even though, as I mentioned, the crowds were quite small at the World Cup, you know, it is the home of the NRL and that is the rugby league that everyone in PNG watches and, and players that they that they sort of know and, and adore, they saw in the flesh. And um, that there was like a, a really good exposure to to what they always knew of rugby league, but only on TV. That's so awesome. Yeah, what a special like experience for them and to share, I guess, for you and the crew. Um, was there anything unexpected that you learnt from telling the story of the Orchids? Well, they call PNG the land of the unexpected. So most things are unexpected when you're doing a project <laughs> in PNG. Um, I think I think one thing... Um, that evolved as as we made the film and we did more and more interviews with the players was that at the beginning of, of of the process I think a lot of stakeholders assumed the film would be more explicitly about the violence problem and and people would talk specifically to that um but as as we got into it and the story of the orchids unfolded it was clearly just as much about inspiring women as trying to change attitudes among men and a lot of the players talked about how they were the first girls or women in their communities to play rugby league and how so many others had followed them. And it became as much a story about inspiring women and girls in PNG to do things that they thought weren't open to them as changing the minds of men. And having finished it and having had some feedback in PNG and in Australia, people seem to think it, it does both. But certainly that was that was sort of an unexpected direction that it ended up going in and I think it was really for the best. I'm so excited to see the film. Um, are there any upcoming screenings happening in Sydney? Yes. Um, the best place to find upcoming screenings is either on our Facebook page or our website. Uh, the name of the film is Power Mary. Mary is spelt M-E-R-I, which means women in pigeon. So Power for Women is the name of the film. So if you go to powermaryfilm.com or Power Mary on Facebook, you'll find all our upcoming screenings. Um, we will hopefully have one in Sydney on Thursday, the 8th of November. I think that'll be the next one um, after you hear this. So, But go to our Facebook page or website to double check. Awesome. Joanna Lester, thank you so much for joining us on Agenda. Thank you. Agenda with Tanya Ali and Katie Winton.
just heard Spree with I Do What I Want and you're tuned into Agenda on FBI Radio and there's an incredible lineup of musicians including Brendan McLean, Jordan Raskopoulos, Marcus Whale and Sports Bra that will pay tribute to their favourite queer artists in the inaugural homage, a queer musical tribute at the Factory Theatre on October 24th. Um, so we're really excited now to be joined by the show's host, host Maeve Marsden. Thanks so much for joining us, Maeve. Thanks for having me. So, um, homage came about as a spin-off from your podcast and storytelling night, Queer Stories. Um, so to start, could you tell us about the background of Queer Stories and how homage was born from it? Yeah. So Queer Stories, I started running ages ago as part of City of Sydney's Late Night Library. So I needed something that kind of looked at public and private lives because I was inspired by the library. And I'm a big gay bro, so I, and I grew up with lesbian mothers. So queer culture and queer history has always been part of my life. So I thought, well, what about a night of just storytelling? 
something. Not This is a few years ago, so everyone was talking about marriage equality a lot, and I was like, what are our other stories? So I started running it as this small night, and people just kept coming, and I'm an entrepreneurial producer, so I started running it as a ticketed event at Giant Dwarf. So now it's been running there nearly two years, and every month, you know, 300-odd people come and listen to six LGBTQI people share a story. And so it's become this really nice space for the diversity of our community and for storytelling as an art form. And I'm a musician and homage as a concept is something some friends and I did maybe eight years ago, I'm showing my age, um, as this yeah tribute to our favourite queer artists. And I suddenly thought, well, here I am now with a queer event that I can spin off and a bunch of musicians I know, why not do it again, but do it bigger and hopefully better and, and yeah. So that's how it came about. And music's such a big part of kind of the queer community's identity. It's part of how we do politics. It's part of how we send coded messages to other queer people through, you know, <laughs> lyrics with gender absent from them. <laughs> and so it totally. feels like a really natural progression um, from queer stories to make it a musical storytelling night. Uh, without giving too much away, can you give us an idea of some of the songs that yeah. will be performed? So people have gone with really diverse like selections of music, which is really nice. So Jordan's covering David Bowie. I'll do what artists they're covering, but not the okay. individual songs. Mm. Jordan's covering David Bowie and Sam Smith. Um, Brendan's doing Scissor Sisters and Rufus Wainwright. I'm going a bit further back and doing Dusty Springfield songs. I was obsessed with Dusty Springfield when I first like sort of came out as a teenager. Um, oh yeah, Marcus Wales doing more contemporary music. So he's covering Troy Sivan and Rainbow yes, Chan. Yes, I've got Sports so, Bra doing a, oh, so like good. a pop punk cover of the Veronicas, which oh. I just cannot wait to hear. <laughs> and then, of course, we're finishing with George Michael. So, yeah, it's a real mix of musical styles, both the styles of the musicians themselves and of the songs we're covering. As a cabaret performer, you're pretty familiar with this idea of cover songs and, um, you know, paying homage yeah. in LGBTIQ. A plus culture. Um, could you talk about why you think it is such a big part of performance in queer spaces? The cover song? Yeah. I think queers are really good at reclaiming culture and changing it and reinventing it. And that's cabaret. And cabaret has a political history and a really queer history. Um, and I think we haven't had stories in a mainstream way. We haven't had our stories take centre stage. So taking bits of culture, whether it's a song or you know a play, and doing these queer reinventions of them is just the way that we've claimed space, I guess. Um, this night's sort of less cabaret in the kind of camp sense. It's more like a live music gig. But there, there is that art of reinvention and, and seeing what you can do with someone else's lyrics to reinterpret them for your own experience. Um, you've spoken about how the show celebrates not only contemporary LGBTQIA plus artists, but also community history. And yeah. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Oh, wow. Community history. I mean, I guess that speaks again to that kind of reclaiming. And and for me, um, community history is my history and the, the history that we create through the, the lives we're living, we're, we're making it now. Um, I know that Jordan, for example, spoke about how she really wants to do a David Bowie song because she feels like when he died, a lot of people kind of dismissed his bisexuality or his queerness and he's so popular and famous that straight society kind of claimed him. And she was like, no, this is a queer icon, this is a queer artist. So that was important to her to do that. So I guess it's, 
yeah, it's part of that. I don't know if that answers the question, but we're kind of living out queer history as we honour these artists. And that's why it was important to me that we not sing queer icons. So it's no no Kylie Minogue, no straight divas who have been played on a bunch of Mardi Gras floats. It has to be queer musicians themselves. Because I think when you do that, you see the way queer people communicate through art. And um, yeah, that was important to me. Um, let's. Can we take a listen to a choice of our song? Yes, <laughs> yes we can. <laughs> this is uh, possibly my favourite. It's called Bloom. Oh yes, you're listening to a tender <laughs> on FBI Radio. Okay. I've got so much to show you The fountains and the waters Are begging just to know you And it's true, baby I've been saving this for you, baby I guess it's something like a funfair Put gas into the motor And boy, I'll meet you right there We'll ride the roller coaster Cause it's true, baby I've been saving this for you, baby Tell me right before it goes down Promise me you'll hold my hand if I get scared now Might tell you to take a second, baby, slow down You should know I, you should know I
Bloom. By Troy Savan. Uh, you're listening to FBI Radio, and we have been joined by Maeve Marsden. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat, uh, Maeve. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, homage is happening at the Factory Theatre in Marrickville on October 24th, and tickets are $35 plus a booking fee. You can head to our program page at fbiradio.com forward slash programs to find more info on that and uh, all of our guests from today's show. We're Gonna leave you now uh, with the brand new track from Rainbow Chan, who Maeve, you uh, said that Marcus Whale is gonna be covering a Rainbow song. Probably not this one um, that we're <laughs> gonna listen it came to. came out a few days it ago. Did, yeah, but that would be very, I mean, it I would be impressive. Pass, I actually yeah. wouldn't he's, be surprised if Marcus could do that. An extremely <laughs> talented person. Uh, but this one is called CSR. I think there's a video out for it as well. And Rainbow is honestly the best, so uh, enjoy this one. Yeah. 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 Yeah.